Hi, and welcome back to the History Machine podcast, episode 12 on Augustus. So this episode is a continuation from episode 11, where we focused on the life and times of Octavian and his conquest before he becomes the principal man in all of Rome. And then after Augustus, we're going to have a look at his successors and see where they go from there. So where we've just started, Octavian has just beaten Antony and Cleopatra. He's returning to Rome. He's got 50 plus legions under his control and he immediately needs to try and uh, get rid of some of these because the upkeep is through the roof. To keep in mind, last time he had to get rid of a couple of legions, he had to confiscate some rich land and sell it off at auction and it didn't raise enough capital and he still had issues and then had to raise some taxes. But this time, just to show how successful the campaign has been in Egypt on his return, is going to have enough finances to just be able to settle the majority of his legions, retire them, with full benefits, with no crazy strain on the state. Such is the wealth that is pulled from Egypt. Put on some boats and travel straight across to Italy. Yeah, this this is where we're starting to kick off the Pax Romana, which is this legendary period of peace. We'll still have a few battles in this episode. Yeah. It wasn't totally peaceful. But we, you know, it, it's slowing down, I guess, Rome's infighting. And I think having enough wealth, basically, to settle all the legions using the war... That's probably the key reason to kick this off, because that's usually where the trouble starts in a lot of our previous episodes, is someone didn't get paid, and now there's a mutiny. <laughs> yeah, but fortunately the coffers are fairly full, so that is no longer a problem. Now, I'm just going to mention this point straight away, because it's very important, and they're going to be an absolutely important arm of who gets to be emperor and why in the long term. But the Praetorian Guard is now formally a thing. Now, If you don't know what the Praetorian Guard is, they've had a development over time. But long story short, the Praetorian Guard are meant to be just some bodyguards on campaign who are meant to protect various officers and officials, usually the commander of the army. And they function very similarly to kind of like a secret service. Their job is just to make sure that, that the commander is protected. Now, the Praetorian Guard is going to evolve from this point into the secret service for the imperial family. Unlike today's Secret Service, they probably end up, spoiler, killing more emperors than they save (laughs) (laughs) and demanding a pay increase every time somebody passes away. So they were always kind of a thing in Roman history, but now they're really much Augustus's thing. And it's one of those, oh, by the way, the Praetorian Guard are here. They're fanatically loyal to me and they're just going to hang around for quite a while doing their business and uh, making sure that everything stays kind of calm and cool and under control while we're here in Rome. When they start off, they're going to have a presence in Rome, but they're going to be camped just outside it. Kind of like, oh, we're just a legion that happens to be hanging around here, playing a cool. (laughs) Don't try anything too radical, anybody. We're not officially breaking the rules of, you know, don't send your army into Rome, but (laughs) it's as good as it. (laughs) Yeah, very much. So with all that in mind, Octavian now is going to have a couple of follow-up battles in Spain. He falls a bit constantly ill. Uh, it's the usual thing when he's on campaign. It may or may not have been, um, you know, oh no, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm not the best commander. I'm going to play it cool in the tent. But, uh, or, you know, legitimately he might have just been, and it comes up so often, he might have just been somebody who did constantly fall ill while on campaign because he was a sickly individual. But this era, as Cahill, you've mentioned, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, it's a peace in the sense that there's no crazy war happening right now. There's no, like, we're taking on Parthia or a civil war. It It is a point where there's going to be an imperial policy to reduce military spending, to police existing borders, squash rebellions immediately as soon as they happen. And from kind of a cost management perspective, it's going to be the most logical thing to do. Because the last thing you want to do is have dozens of legions knocking around, 
expecting a paycheck and not being able to conquer territories to give them that paycheck. From this point, even though it, you'll have your moments where Rome is kind of absorbing territories still, but it's meant to be relative peace. It is the idea that the legions are going to be stationed near borders. That number 50 is going to drop between about 28 and 30 legions. They're going to be spread out throughout the, the borders of the empire, and their job is more so to maintain and to be a reduced upkeep force and to be a, um, to be a reactive force instead of a proactive force. Now, somebody we never mentioned in the last episode, and she's very important to mention, she would have been more of a background character. You can't really talk about Augustus without talking about his wife, Livia. During the events of Augustus's rise, he was married, and he had a daughter, Julia, and then he divorced. Now, he divorces to marry somebody from the Claudian family, and he's about to marry probably the most sought-after woman in Rome. So she is a Claudian, but one issue, she's already married to somebody, and that somebody is Tiberius Claudius. Now, I'm going to refer to him as Tiberius Claudius Sr., because later there's going to be another Tiberius, and it might get quite confusing. We've mentioned in previous episodes, the Romans have like a dozen names they kind of go between. Yeah, they do. But but even with that said, Carl, I've had that thought where it's like, oh, everyone's a Gaius or a Tiberius or a Claudius. But I'm like, I have a father, a grandfather, an uncle, a brother, and a nephew that are either named William or John. Yeah, that's fair enough. I'm sure if you go through your family history, you'll be like, actually, we re- repeat names quite frequently, too. Probably they had more names as well. It's just the significant families keep coming up again and again. So. Oh, yeah. It's kind of get a little bit of honor rubbed off you from get, getting dad's full name on there as well. You know, So Tiberius Senior, as we're going to call him here, is possibly one of the most unlucky Romans ever. During the Civil Wars, he sides with Pompey the Great, and then he jumps to Caesar right before Caesar is assassinated. And then after Caesar is assassinated, he goes, I'm going to join Brutus's camp, because that seems to be the way the wind is blowing. (laughs) And he gets fed up with Brutus's camp, and he joins up with Sextus Pompey. And then finally, after having slights with Pompey, he moves over to join Mark Antony. So it is an absolute (laughs) miracle. (laughs) This man has not been purged somewhere along the way. (laughs) But he he survives. So it's it's just the, if if there was, I I don't know if there was some kind of bet. If you just betted against him every time, (laughs) you would have had a a sure success. So, uh, yeah, so during the Civil Wars, it all ends up, somehow he, he happens to survive, and he's married to, to Livia. He has one child with Livia at the moment. This is going to be Tiberius. And Livia is also heavily pregnant with another child who will be born soon, will be called Drusus. Now, Augustus organises a divorce and a marriage literally days after Livia is going to give birth to her second son. So um, Augustus then successfully marries into the most notable family, having Tiberius, like, give her away. And, um, and he doesn't adopt these two sons yet now, but he, he has married into the most blue-blooded of blue-blooded uh, families. Yeah. Even though the Romans don't have royalty, they do have pedigree. And she is topped. She's top shelf. So to talk a little bit more about Livia, she's a bit of an enigma. So she presents herself as somebody very stoic, modest. She's simply dressed. She's the idealistic Roman matron. Apparently, she used to spin clothes herself to make for Augustus. She seems like this almost ideal, larger-than-life, stoic, virtuous woman. Now, it's also rumoured, and we'll come across this later, that she could just be really secretly vindictive, calculating, and murderous. Now, we'll come across that later, because there's a lot of coincidences which you go, wow, it's really coincidence for Livia that all of this happened. She could always be both. You know, she can just 
be like someone who like murders and plots, but also enjoys sewing as a hobby. You, you need some downtime as well in between all the plotting. Here's the murder I crocheted. <laughs> so um, Augustus now, like Scipio Africanus before him, is going to be made the princeps. So officially, that is, he is the first among equals. So he, oh, along, along his campaigns as well, he added the title of Imperator, arguably unjustified to his name, to give him a little bit of pomp and, and presence and um, a little bit of, you know, gravitas and dignity to the whole, well, I'm the most important man in Rome here. I would like to be known as Imperator. Gives, gives him a nice choice of if he needs to be of the people, he is the, you know, princey. But then if he also needs to be like, you know, I say equals, but I am, you know, I'm still better than you. Let's not forget. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can pick out which one depending on the situation. Definitely. Uh, but to keep in mind, some of our listeners will immediately know what Imperator is, but we'll explain it a little bit just for anybody who doesn't. It is a military rank. It is one that is given. So it's not like a formal rank, like a corporal or a sergeant. It's a title that's given to a successful commander. It is a title that historians will use to reference an emperor. Because it's very important here that in this new ruling dynasty, they're never ever going to refer to themselves as Rex, as king. They're not going to refer to themselves as dictator. They're not going to go down the Julius Caesar road of ruling. It's very important the power of language. The rank of imperator is usually added on to any emperor who has halfway of, uh, you know, they'll fall into a battle and they'll give themselves the title. And even when there's dynastic disputes, any, you know, second century Roman general who conquers or has any single wind under his belt is almost immediately declared imperator. So it's, it's very often, it's a rank and a title that is given to someone to kind of go, okay, they are either in charge or they are threatening the status quo and are potentially going to start a civil war. It's used all the time by historians and it's where the word emperor comes from. It's where we think the word of, uh, it's where we get that and that's why we refer to them as that. But at the time, it's just a title. It's like a sir, like like a knighthood or something, but it's just given to a commander. I just want to mention a little bit of a side note. So we have seen the fall of Antony and Cleopatra. And while we're entering this era of Pax Romana, Crassus's grandson, if you remember Crassus, who lost at the Battle of Carrhae, lost those three standards in the uh, <laughs> in Parthia to the horse archers, his grandson, who is also very, very wealthy, decides to preemptively invade the Balklands to kind of stamp out a war before it happens. A little bit risky. Now, as a result of this, he kills an enemy commander king in single combat, and he's entitled to claim the armour. Now, this is like a super rare Roman achievement. This is like an Xbox One unlocked, you know, (laughs) 0.001%. And it's it's an achievement that was started by Romulus, uh, who apparently killed another king in single combat, and then gets to bring the armour, bring it back. And only three people previously in history achieved this title, or this, uh, you know, as I said, the the, the unlocking of it, uh, the spoils of honour. So the armour is going to be stripped and placed in the Temple of Jupiter in Rome. This is going to be a very big problem in an era where Augustus has started now some renovations and fixing up temples and he's by far the most important man in Rome and no one really challenging his authority. Because the last time some kind of governor took this much initiative and earned similar kind of titles, it resulted in a civil war. Just think of Julius Caesar. Augustus really needs to disfuse this political bomb because by all rights, this could so easily spiral into... A faction that aren't happy with Augustus coming over to 
this crassus and saying, oh, hey, hold on now, we think you should possibly be the guy in charge, or maybe you should be the person to start another civil war, and we're going to have this whole thing start all over again. But Augustus somehow diffuses this by simply muddying the waters with a political bomb, by making a discovery during some of the temple renovations, where he discovers, in air marks... Yeah, it's, it's worth noting in our notes here, you've written discovery in quotation marks, just like... Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yes, he does make a discovery uh, during a temple renovation that all previous people who have claimed this spoils of honour were either a king or a consul, and therefore this achievement can't be awarded to somebody who's a non-consul like Crassus. Now, this is a silly, weak, horrible basis but it's enough just to go, I'm petty enough to say, no, you, technically, you didn't do the speedrun in that time. I love how you get these people who are so obsessed with, like, Roman culture, you know, often these kind of, like, quasi-fascist people who, who just see it as, like, you know, as mm. the epitome of, like, tradition and honour and all these things. And they just made it up as they went along. You read you read enough Roman history, you just see time and time <laughs> again, the person in the most power will just make it up as they go along. And in this case, like, he knew this is the guy with tons of money and has now shown some military competence. He is a serious threat if anyone mm. wants, you know, as someone that people could prop up if they want to go against him. And he just makes some stuff up to make it go away. Yes. So on the political chessboard, Augustus now has done a very simple, it's, it's, it's a simple opening of like, okay, I've done this. I'm trying to muddy the water a little bit. You, you played very, you, you, you've done very well, but I'm about to just go straight into checkmate here. We're going to go scholars mate really, really quickly. Um, he goes, well, you, what you're going to do right now, Crassus, um, I'm going to call him Crassus Jr. You're going to go to the Bucklands, you're going to kill some muddy old king who's living up there and you're going to steal his armour and pretend that you're all that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to organise a visit to Parthia and I'm going to negotiate the peace and the return of those eagle standards that your granddad lost 20 years ago. So I'm going to do so much better than you in record time with virtually no casualties. So, you know, you can have your little triumph. I don't care. I've uh, just brought back all of the honour to Rome. <laughs> While also reminding everyone of like, this is what your family did. This is the mess I had to clean up the last time your family did anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's hope I don't have to clean up a king in the Balklands after this either. <laughs> but it really, it, it nips in the bud immediately, this potential crassus kickoff for a civil war. This is where we have to give a crazy amount of credit to Augustus. Because out of nowhere, from a very simple, oh no, a governor of a region has preemptively attacked. They're starting something. They've got legions under their command. They're getting honours. They, um, you know, they could be a threat to Rome. That could have so quickly spiralled into a civil war. And it is so rapidly just diffused. And it's diffused, it kind of feels in a petty way at times, but it is diff- diffused. This this is over. You don't hear from Crassus Jr. anymore. He's he's allowed to go and have a simple triumph and he's just going to retire into complete obscurity. So to go do a little bit of a summary of what's going to happen next. Augustus is just going to jump from consul to consulship and eventually he decides, you know, it's a little bit monotonous that I'm filling up one of the two most important roles in Rome. So it's kind of like the consulship's kind of like the presidency, except they have two of them and he's effectively filling up that slot every time. Uh, But eventually he just goes, it's a little bit monotonous. I don't like being consul constantly over and over and over again. So I'm going to free up that role, but I'm going to do it on a concession here to the Senate. If you just give me some additional powers (laughs) and just say I'm allowed to do A, B and C, let's say... um, uh, we could come to some kind of agreement like that and you can just all run for consulship and I won't get in your way. Now, he stages the old, and this will come up in other episodes where we talk about empires and imperium and thing. It's like, it's the old, um, ask me again and 
<laughs> uh, no, okay, then ask me one more time. Well, if you thoroughly, thoroughly insist, yeah. I, I guess I will be in charge. <laughs> so, <laughs> so ironically, by giving up the consulship, it actually makes him more powerful than he ever was before. But this is the cool thing. As I said, he, he is the princeps and he is Augustus. He is going to be declared later the father of his country. But he's given all of these titles and ranks over time and he's gradually given more and more power. But he is never ever referred to as a king he has never ever he actually abolishes the uh, the uh, office of dictator he's like that, that we don't need that anymore that's gone <laughs> let's let's not have any uh, illusions to what's actually happening but he keeps up this charade of elections are still going to happen the senate is still going to be a thing and you're just going to you know wander around do what you have to do but ultimately any decision that's made is actually going to go through me but we're going to just pretend that everything still stays normal it's actually at this point here now when he does give up the consulship that he's officially given the name Augustus by the Senate. Now, it's a great name because they did want to call him something like Romulus, but they kind of went, that's a little too close to, you know, people know Romulus is the king. And eventually someone coined like this idea that, oh, he's a really august figure. We should call him Augustus. It has that that feel of uh, vibrant and powerful and gravitas and commanding and re regal but not regal it's 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 a little way around it that like yes there's no better word to describe this man augustus now i'll settle a tiny bit just talk a teeny bit about the word augustus uh historically we mentioned that you know imperator is the is a title or rank that's often given to these commanders or generals and especially usurpers however augustus is going to be this official title that is going to be passed from emperor to emperor. And that's the whole one of like, we will call, you are the Augustus, you are the emperor. They don't use the word emperor, but that title is going to be the most important person. And usually, um, and this is later down the line for emperors as well, it'll be the Augustus and he'll appoint somebody as like his Caesar. And you go, okay, he's the next in line. So it's having a dynastic succession without really saying there's a dynastic succession because it's super important to keep the language to this point of like, technically we're not a monarchy or we're not a royalty yeah and it's kind of funny as well since then the word caesar is the etymology for a lot of different countries word for king or emperor like Tsar and kaiser are both derived from that so they kept using it until it just came back to the original meaning pretty quickly mm. so at this point lepidus is going to die and if you remember Lepidus, he was the joke of the last episode uh he retired into obscurity and when he did die he was still the pontifus maximus a lot of people were kind of like, uh, is he actually still alive? I, I would have thought he might have been purged years ago in a civil war. But he does pass away, and Augustus then acquires the new religious title of Pontifus Maximus. He's adding to just the collection of titles. He's got the titles, the prestige, the awards, the the various um, the perks that come with it. But this Pontifus Maximus is now that he's the head of the Roman Church. He's he's the most you know he's the he's the head priest. Traditionally, if that happens, he's meant to move into a temple, but he kind of goes, I don't really want to move into a temple, so how about I build a temple in my house and we'll we'll do that. So, so I just said, making up the He's rules so as we go along that, here. It's like, oh, by all means. He's so good at, like, just either finding or inventing loopholes. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. So Augustus at this time, along with Agrippa and the other members of the imperial family, are going to decide to do a big renovation of Rome. So when people think of Rome as a city, you think of, you know, the, the, the white marble, the wall-to-wall, the temples, the everything. 
that's not really the Rome you will get from the Julius Caesar, from the Sullas, from the Scipio Africanus. There's a lot more brick, a lot more shabbier, a lot more older temples. In fact, like Romulus has a patched hut that they just keep renovating every now and then to go, he lived here. Um, but when you think of the ancient Rome, the big paintings, the really Napoleonic, you know, romantic paintings of Rome, this is what Augustus is going to do. He's going to build that. He's going to renovate it. Now, he's got a crazy volume of money. In fact, he's got so much money that these renovations aren't going to do a dent into their per- into their finances at all, into the imperial family. Um, so it's going to keep people happy with like, I'm going to build an aqueduct. I'm going to work on a theatre. I'm going to uh, update a temple. He's, he's going to build a fabulous temple of Mars. But more than, more than 70 temples and buildings, he's going to update. Now, some of them are just a lick of paint. And some of them are going to be wall-to-wall, marble, gold, everything. But it's going to result that Augustus is going to make the Rome that people think of, that they know of. He's going to make it much more like other contemporary Greek cities that would have been successor states from Alexander. That when they visited Rome were like, hold on a second, you live in this place that's just full of brick and slums. And they're like, we're living in places that have pantheons and palaces and temples and really good grids and squares. Your place is so sporadic and chaotic, it's almost embarrassing. But Augustus is going to clean that up. He's the guy who's going to do the, the patches, the checkups, the, the updating. A, a tremendous amount of wealth spent. But it still ain't going to do a dent to him. He's that, that wealthy. So between Augustus and Agrippa, they're going to fund these seemingly limitless projects. The renovations are going to be massive. Uh, but realistically, as I said, they have so much imperial wealth, it doesn't do a dent in it at all. Uh, from here, we'll talk a little bit about Augustus's uh, personal life. So he is married to Livia. Now, part of the grounds of him marrying Livia is he knew that she could have children because she was already pregnant and she had a baby beforehand, uh, Tiberius. And he knew he could have children because he had a daughter with his previous wife and the daughter's name is Julia. So the idea is, OK, this political marriage is going to happen. We're going to have a couple of children. The whole succession is going to be fairly secured. Now, unexpectedly, they don't actually have children. So Augustus looking around, kind of going, the last thing I want to do is set up some kind of empire and not have this whole succession thing in check. Who can I groom? Who can I adopt? Who can be next in charge? Now, I just want to mention a small side note. You can look at vast dynasties globally and they will have this problem and try and come up with this kind of solution. You can look at modern, contemporary British monarchy. They have... They have a, a whole system of who's to be in charge uh, and who is to be the next successor in what order to like the, the hundredth person. It's very clearly doled out who's meant to be in charge. Now, remember, this Roman Empire is not a kingdom officially. It's not a kingdom. Don't worry about it. It definitely isn't that. But we need to have some kind of prince in all but name. And Augustus, having no children with Livia, which once again is the surprise, he's going to groom his nephew, Marcus Claudius Marcellus, to be next in line. To start this, Augustus marries his only daughter, Julia, to Marcus. Now, this is solidifying the new heir's claim. He's going to go, okay, this is my daughter. I'm going to marry into... Now, you know, you can look at this. Royalty has done worse. A nephew marrying a... Cousin marriage is pretty standard for royalty. Really. There is a blood connection there, and you're like, Ugh. yeah, it is, it is, yeah, <laughs> that kind of thing does happen. But uh, it really solidifies that this guy is definitely going to be the next in line, and he's being groomed and prepped for it. Augustus is going to fall seriously ill, seemingly on death's door, crazy ill. 
you know, uh, we've mentioned before, maybe he, you know, he, he definitely suffered from bouts of sickness and maybe he used that as an excuse not to lead an army. But he's in a very, very bad position here where he gets deathly ill and on his supposed near deathbed, instead of naming Marcus the new successor, who is a teenager, he goes, this kid is not going to survive a purge, a civil war or whatever. He turns to his BFF, Agrippa, the old trusted general, and goes, you get to be in charge if I die. And, you know, hint, hint, maybe train up Marcus, do something like that. But I can't trust this with a teenager. He ain't nearly as lucky as I am. Let's not have this dynasty fall apart before it even gets to begin. Marcus is really quite young. Augustus clearly didn't have faith in him to command. And miraculously, Augustus recovers. Now, when he does, Marcus then falls seriously ill and dies. Augustus is advised to make Agrippa his son-in-law or get rid of him. The guy is too important. He's too, he's very clearly the next in line. You are almost about to die. And, you know, any faction that mightn't like you might kind of sally up to Agrippa. Now, Agrippa is like super best friends. I can't imagine him ever betraying Augustus. He picked his friends very, very well in that sense. But it's very important that you better make Agrippa the next in charge or the next in line or you or you got to get rid of him because he's not related to the family but he is like the second man in Rome here now and he's the one that the history machine felt was the best general from the last episode too so you know you don't want to cross him oh yeah <laughs> so yeah he's 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 got the chops and he's got the military background so augustus now marries his only daughter julia to agrippa and from this newly married widow uh, julia and agrippa have five children. They have Gaius, Lucius, Julia, Agrippa, and Agrippiana. So these names are going to pop up all the time. So we, we won't focus too much on them and we'll explain who's who and we'll give them little nicknames when we come across them. But you're going to find a lot of Gaiuses, a lot of Lucius, a lot of Luciuses, a lot of Agrippas, a lot of Agrippinas. Um, they're going to show up across all of this dynasty. But it's just important to know that when they marry, they have five children and Augustus is effectively ecstatic. And he adopts the two eldest boys, Gaius and Lucius. So they are now adopted, even though they are uh, genetically his grandkids. He adopts them as his sons. And Agrippa kind of goes, well, you know what? They're going to have a much better life under Augustus than they ever will with me. And it means that my sons are probably going to be the next in line to be their, their princes in all but name for Rome. These guys are going to be groomed for leadership and they are adored by the public. It's one of these things of like, oh, look at the little princelings, but they're not really princelings. They're wonderful. Isn't it great? They're they're going to be the next rulers of Rome. Oh, we'll try and make them consul as soon as possible. From this point, Agrippa dies in 12 BC. And just after Julie gives birth to their last child, we mentioned just earlier there, Agrippa. Now we're going to call him Agrippa posthumous so he's meant to be he's the last son he's born after agrippa dies and um as we've mentioned the boys are princes in all but name i'm going to diverge and talk a little bit about livia's eldest son who was just sitting there in the background for quite a while and he's the head of the claudians and he's going to be very very important throughout this episode but it's just a good time to mention him right now tiberius so tiberius is the head of the claudians and in that time of all of this political and dynastic shenanigans, he has become a very well-seasoned, drilled, slow and calculating commander. 
But an important thing is he doesn't gel too well with Augustus. He is not his son. He is not officially his son. He is the head of the Claudians. He's the head of the, one of the most blue-blooded aristocratic families in Rome ever. He's related to the Claudians on both sides, on the mother and the father. But he just does not gel well at all with Augustus. This will lead to problems there at time. But after Agrippa dies, Augustus decides he's going to get Tiberius to divorce Tiberius's current wife and marry up his only daughter, Julia, to Tiberius. And this way he's going to tie up the most potentially lucrative imperial bride. Augustus got serious mileage out of Julia. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> he really did. <laughs> he really, really did. <laughs> but it's... Uh... <laughs> It's just what he does. But, <laughs> he just marries her. Away. Like, it's also a whole thing of like, Jesus yeah. Christ, if you marry her, you're going to die. But, <laughs> but uh, she is potentially the most lucrative imperial bride. She's, she's, she's the whole, like, she's the big connection to Augustus. She's his only biological daughter. And she's probably the most uh, prominent and sought after woman. So it's to, to tie up that loose end instead of having some other commander come in potentially try and marry her and start a civil war he's just going to go Tiberius alright I need you to do a job for the family you divorce your wife marry Julia tie this up let's have no issues now Tiberius was happily married to Vipsania there's a very sad little note um, that was recorded that apparently he, he bumped into Vis- Vipsania later and he was kind of really sad and mopey and like oh no I, I miss my wife and he was told like you were never allowed to see her again this is that you can't be mopey around this you're, you're married now to the most prominent woman in the most prominent and eligible bride in in rome that's that's what you've got here so tiberius seems to have this kind of you know as i said he's the he's the calculating slow meticulous management kind of a commander and his younger brother drusus unexpectedly dies in campaign near Germany when his horse rolls over and crushes him. And Tiberius in his grief rides hundreds of miles through really dangerous land to see his dying brother before before he passes away. And so the guy, as I said, the guy is just a... Yeah. You can see why he doesn't gel with Augustus because every time he does something, Augustus is like, oh, I'm just going to ruin your life, Tiberius, or make it a little bit more hard, but you're going to do it for the glory and benefit of the Julian family that you're not really a part of. So, you know, snap, snap, make it easy. <laughs> And to add insult to injury, uh, Tiberius is then made the tribune of the plebs by Augustus because this was a rank that that was given to Agrippa. And Tiberius is crazily blue-blooded that to give him this rank is virtually an insult. Uh, So now it comes with a lot of powers and prestige and privilege, but he's like, I'm not a pleb and I'm not the tribune of them. Yeah, again, just Augustus, he's he's just so good at being passive-aggressive. Like... Just all his politicking, just to be like, give you a thing that is technically, like, officially, this is a good thing. This is viewed as a promotion officially, but you just know it's going to annoy them. Oh, definitely. And at this point, Augustus is starting to get a little bit weird. When you you got absolute power, you can start doing strange things. But he takes a look around Rome and he goes, I think this place is not doing too well because people aren't moral anymore. And it's important that I introduce some censorship laws. Uh, I'm going to make adultery legal. Sorry, illegal. Let me make sure that one. <laughs> going to make adultery illegal. And I'm going to pass some laws and make sure that, uh, you know, if a Roman woman has a lot of kids, there's some benefits to that. So he, effectively, he's looking back at this kind of non-existent glorious past where he's like, what made the Romans great? And it was like, it was having the really strong family unit and making sure that women had loads of sons. And then we have can fill the legions with people. And it also another important, like, for the people who romanticize Roman Empire and talk about how today no one has any morals, at the peak of the Roman Empire, they're saying no one has any morals. <laughs> <laughs> Just 
just another side note. <laughs> yeah, it's very fair. Now, Augustus definitely got a bit weird here because he's introducing these moral laws. It's super hypocritical because if he is anything, and he's a lot of things, he was a notorious adulterer. He, he was meant to have like slept with loads of senators' wives, every, like everything. He's just meant to be kind of a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do-here situation. Now, what's funny about this is even though Augustus starts introducing these laws, it's only around then that he, he realises he's been having a blind eye looking at his only daughter and realised that, wait a minute, she has been up to a lot of sexy shenanigans and these are coming to light and I think i got to exile her. At this point now, he, he could have potentially had her, you know, he, like, okay, this sounds terrible. He could have potentially had her killed. He's like, I'm going to exile you to an island and you're going to have to learn from all of this and you're a terrible daughter and I introduce all these laws and you're just out whoring and touring. So this is not, this is not what I raised. <laughs> but, but apparently it is what I raised. <laughs> His only daughter, Julia, is now exiled for her sexy shenanigans and her two sons, the two heirs, Gaius and Lucius, are the absolute darlings of Rome. Augustus actually intervenes when Gaius is 14 and the Senate go, we should make him consul. He goes, you were not making a 14-year-old consul. In a thousand years time or 1500 years time, you can make a 14-year-old the Pope, but you can't do it now, all right? There's not, it's not going to happen. <laughs> we're not going to throw fuel onto the fire where it's very clearly these people are princes. Um, so the Senate kind of go, okay, we won't do that. Gaius and Lucius are effectively starting their campaigns. They're working out, they're training to be soldiers. They also mysteriously die in quick succession. They are possibly poisoned, and this is another wrench straight into the Imperial plans. So, we've lost the heir, Agrippa has passed away, and now we've lost Agrippa's two sons. At this point, it is decided by Augustus, I'm starting to run out of boys here, but he's going to adopt the two remaining potential heirs, Agrippa Jr., Agrippa Posthumus, and Tiberius. Tiberius, who he does not gel with. All of this, now we have talked for quite a while just to set the stage of what's going on. The Roman Empire is fairly secured. The borders are propped up. The policies are set in place. The empire is planning its succession. They're quelling potential civil wars. They're nipping rebellions in the bud. Governors are given very limited powers. Augustus has gotten himself outrageous powers and now he's declaring, he's adopting people to be declared unofficial heirs. They are royalty in all but name. But what we're going to cover next is probably one of the most famous battles in history. We've set the stage of the Pax Romana, what's kind of going on. There's a lot of political and internal dynastic debates, but there isn't really any military problems happening right now. But if this battle rings a bell, you're going to know exactly where it's coming from because it's meant to be superly devastating. And if you're not familiar with it, let us introduce it to you. Cahal, this is the Battle of the Teutoburg Pass. So let's get started on exactly what is going on here with the Teutoburg Pass. At this point, the borders of the Roman Empire up north is heating into the Germanic territory. The old Roman situation where they annex a territory, settle down, get some auxiliaries, train them in, make them as Roman as they possibly can, and suddenly this new area now is very kind of uh, Romanized. They're planning on doing something very similar to Germany. Now, a figure is going to appear in this story who is vital and important and one of the, probably uh, probably the starting figure for most of modern Germany history because he is portrayed as a superstar um, and as a mega hero and somebody who, depending on who you talk to, is kind of like, the charismatic, amazing commander who stops 
Germany from becoming Latinized. He this is why you got a Germanic language and and you know Germany isn't Latin, or German and other languages around it aren't Latin based that they're they're Germanic in origin. This man is referred to as in his Latin name Arminius, but sometimes in Germany he's often referred to as just Hermann. So Arminius, to put him in in, in very simple terms, he is some kind of Germanic nobility. He was raised in the Roman way and became uh, involved in their auxiliary cavalry. So similar to the way that the Romans seem to outsource their cavalry, they brought them in. This is the auxiliary. This guy here, he can speak Latin. He has, he would be clean shaven. He would be very, very, very Roman in appearance, in behavior, in mannerisms, in being able to read and write, in his armor, in his setup, in his getup. He achieved Roman citizenship, like, but through his military service and everything. Like he's that yeah. Roman at this point. Yeah. But this is why it becomes a very, very crazy surprise that this man is going to turn on the empire. They kind of made him in a sense as well. It's like they gave him all these awards, the training, the setup. But this particular battle, the Battle of the Teutoburg Pass. Now, it was sometimes called the Teutoburg Forest, but due to a translation, the idea is it historians are now fairly confident it could mean pass or forest. And they're they're like, okay, it's pass. They've settled on that it's the Teutoburg Pass, not the Teutoburg Forest. This battle can be interpreted across a vast spectrum. So on one vicious end of the spectrum, this is going to be an absolute disastrous loss for a seemingly indestructible legion by a horde of noble, barbaric German tribesmen. And the Roman legions are never going to fully recover from this. And it's the incompetent, arrogant actions of their commander, Varus, who seals the fate for it. And Augustus is going to spend the rest of his life suffering from a breakdown and outbursts and banging his head against the wall and asking people to give back his legions and the Germanic war leader is going to unite the squabbling tribes and, and he's going to form like the, the basis of the start of a Germany you know you can interpret that any way you want and it's going to be the later foundations for Germanic states it's going to end the tide of imperial Latin conquests and needless to say uh, extremists and nationalists will look at that and kind of say this, this is the way to interpret it on the other end of the spectrum you're going to have people who claim that this battle almost didn't happen. (laughs) Now, of all the battles, this one has actually a huge amount of historical evidence. So it did happen and it it was the case. But another more, I'm going to say, more neutral way to look at this battle is it's going to be a big upset because three Roman legions over the space of about a weekend are going to be ambushed and obliterated in a deep, dark forest in Germany. Of between 28 and 30 legions they're about to lose three and they lose it over as i said they lose it over a weekend and it's a shock initially to the system because we've lost 10 percent of the roman military capability almost overnight it, it can be replaced but it's going to take time but we haven't had a shock or an upset like this since possibly hannibal and that's a terrifying idea that these germanic tribes that would have thought savages we have actually incorporated people like arminius into the latin world taught them bits and pieces and they've actually used it directly against us i'd also like to take advantage of this to say at this point the roman army was decimated and yeah. no one can nitpick us because it was about 10 percent that they lost yay <laughs> that's wonderful uh, it's great when it actually it, it, we can finally say that because for a lot of the time they're not but this is this is the one with it um there is a governor varus and he's informed by the loyal trusting Herman or Arminius that there's going to be a little rebellion up north here by some Germanic tribes. I found out about it. What you need to do, and this is pretty much imperial policy, we need to nip this in the bud immediately. Now, to give the commander Varus a little bit of credit, 
he had actually done this a few times in other provinces. He had gone, there's a rebellion. I nip this in the bud immediately. We put it down. We keep the peace. I'm an excellent manager and governor. I'll make sure that, you know, that this place stays relatively pacified and that Augustus stays happy with me. So hearing news from somebody who's almost everything in Roman, who, who has been trained, he is Germanic, but, you know, he has a Latinized name. Uh, he speaks fluent Latin. For him to go, there are some Germanic tribes up north that are planning a rebellion. You need to take care of this really quickly. He's like, thank you so much for this favour. If this spiraled into something much worse... You know, it could be not necessarily my head in a plate, but it'd definitely be a much worse situation for me. So Varus decides to take his three legions and they march in a long, long snake-like column into the deep, dark forest. When they're marching into the Teutoburg Pass, they notice a couple of things happening. Number one, they, they start losing um, Arminius. He, he offers to ride ahead and do a whole, I'll scout the place. We'll see what's going on. Don't hear anything from him. Kind of troubling, but they're still marching the way through suddenly they just get like hails of missiles at them and they're like oh crap this is a bit of a problem we need to keep going and they do keep marching and they keep marching and they keep marching now eventually when they hit into the Teutoburg Pass they start noticing things that are quite strange and very unusual like part of it is they're it's almost eerie because this is probably the furthest away from home than most of these legionnaires have ever ever been and they're heading further and further every time they're heading up north and instead of finding something alien, they still find the kind of boggy, marshy woodland. But they find eerily Roman palisades built into it, fortification setups. And if it, this is very speculative now, if a legionnaire had a look at it, they go, this is ridiculously similar to what we built. This is very, it's kind of alien in a sense. But what is happening is the Germanic tribes have taken that imperial knowledge and they are using it against the Romans in a sense of we know how you fight we know how to take care of you we know what's the best way to attack you we know the use of fortifications and we're going to use it now Carl, we can go into the figures for a moment but I'm going to mention something very very quickly about this battle that as we said it's it's considered sometimes this tremendous upset there's a couple of things to mention that even though they lose so many legions so quickly and it's it's perceived as this shocking oh no the unbeatable legions have been beaten they were beaten at Carhay against the horse archers. Hannibal gave them a good smashing. And uh, Vercingetorix had defeated Caesar. It turns out that if you ever want to defeat a Roman army, and you've got a time machine, you go back and you have to give them any kind of advice, the best thing you could possibly say is, have an ambush, hit them quick, and run and move on. It's whenever you get this big, wide-open field battle, you're probably going to lose due to the organisation, yeah. the setup. But a guerrilla campaign is disastrous financially and morally and even uh, casualty-wise to any Romans. So if you ever get the chance, it makes sense that Arminius, with his training and understanding, goes, we can't take the legions head on. doesn't matter how brave you think you are. The best way to take care of them is this. So as they funnel through the Teutoburg Pass, they're just ambushed, surrounded and completely annihilated and the commander Varus falls on his sword. Now, the Romans after this, obviously, they, some of them will be captured, they're going to be tortured, they'll be slaughtered, their arms will be stripped, and they will lose three legion standards. And once again, shock to the system. Very heavy hit to this Pax Romana idea of we thought everything was fine, we thought all the trouble was internal political squabbling, and now we potentially have a Germanic menace on our hands. So, Cahill, do you want to go into what the history machine itself really thinks of this very famous battle, what we can deduce from it. So the History Machine figures are kind of interesting because, as you said there, Arminius, 
he knew exactly the strategy to employ against Rome. Like, it's it's bad odds, given that they are a tribal confederation, basically. You know, they still don't have, they don't have the finances, they don't have a lot of the resources that Rome has. You know, Rome can take a hit and then come back at you. Mm-hmm. The Germans really can't. But he does know this gives them the best shot, and the history machine actually gave him a near certain chance to win this battle. Once the Roman army fell into the trap, once they fell into the ambush, they weren't going to get out of it. Mm-hmm. However, the history machine did not expect him to deal nearly as many casualties as he did. It expected them to take out about 10% of the Roman army, and given the Roman army's better resources, better you know armor, everything else, it actually thought the Romans would take out a lot of the Germans in the process. It thought it would take out about a quarter of their army. Instead... The Roman army was basically entirely destroyed, and Arminius's army lost maybe seven percent. Mm-hmm. So uh, his his casualties dealt over expectation, like it was about eighty eight percentage points, like higher than expected. Like it was, it, he's he strategically he set it up perfectly, mm-hmm. but then the execution was maybe even more brutal than expected. So he has probably like a ninety nine percent chance of winning yeah. it, which is incredible. Like it's like oh, it's almost a near certainty. And then the idea is he dealt out way more casualties. Now, we have to give credit where credit is due for Arminius here. They did set up like palisades and fortifications and funneling. And they did use their tools and instruments incredibly well. And also the terrain of which they're in is very boggy and marshy and would make it very difficult for any seasoned Roman legionnaire to go, let's form up a proper um, line of men here and try and deal with this onslaught. The terrain itself might help explain some of where the history machine goes, oh, you shouldn't be able to march some of these Romans right out of here, you know, punch your way through and form some kind of setup and and try and get out, you know, which was something like they were trying to do. But to be completely and utterly annihilated, there has to be a huge amount of credit here given to Arminius and probably a good bit of blame to be given to Varus here. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Varus was probably doing what any other Roman commander or Roman governor since Crassus Jr. should have done in a term of there's a potential rebellion I need to go and squash this before it becomes a problem before I have to turn to Augustus and go oh by the way there's some uh, Germans up north and they formed a massive confederation and there's a huge army and they besieged some of our towns and they've ransacked everything and uh, I knew about it earlier but I didn't do anything so but it was kind of the brilliance of Arminius's plan is that he knew the Roman playbook he knew exactly what the template was that they were expected to follow and knew that they were very unlikely to deviate from that because you know you mess that up you're gonna have no future definitely Um, you know if if you decide to be creative and it doesn't work Mm. it's it's gonna end badly for you if you if you're a roman general so yeah armenius really just played it perfectly now what's probably terrifying about right now is there's no more Agrippa. He's gone. So remember, we were playing with the B team and now we kind of go, we actually probably don't have any reasonably good commanders available. Now, spoiler, we have we have Tiberius. He'll turn out to be kind of okay. But at the moment, Augustus can't go, you know what, I'm going to get my own legions and I'm going to head up to Germany and I'm going to sort them out because he's a hopelessly bad commander. It's the open secret. And he's been promoting governors based on loyalty as opposed to military merit. So we've got this situation where we go, we thought the legions were fairly... Um, reliable and we've lost so many so quickly we can't really afford to do that now they can afford to do it another nine times but <laughs> but uh <laughs> but losing 10 like if a business lost 10 percent of its stock tomorrow you know they'd be 
there'd be war. <laughs> yeah. So we can look at it that way. Where it's still a large amount of people to lose just over nothing. But Arminius is going to effectively become some kind of. He's a Germanic hero now. You know, he's he has hit Rome very, 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 very hard. We might move on and talk a tiny bit about just another battle from Arminius because he's got a win at the Battle of Pontus Longi. Carl, do you want to see what the history machine thinks about that for Arminius as well? Yeah, so this one is here where we see, I guess, kind of the the limitations uh, that Arminius still has to deal with. Like, being able to unify the German tribes against Rome was incredible, because prior to that, I mean, they would have all fought one another, really. You know, it's just that they had a common enemy to make sure that they didn't get assimilated. But here's where we kind of fall into problem, because... This battle, you can view it as a win for Arminius, but I suppose strategically it's more of a draw. Mm-hmm. Because this was kind of a multi-day kind of battle. Yes. Day one, similar thing, like very well done, caught the Roman army unaware, mm-hmm. uh, managed to push them back. But then they really, there were disagreements between Arminius and his other commanders over how they should follow up, how they should wipe out the Roman army. And in that time, the Roman army was actually able to kind of regroup, get themselves together, and they were able to fend off the Germans, day two. Overall kind of a draw, but Arminius again here, he performed, if you view it as a draw, he performed two expectations because it gave him a 50-50 chance for the battle. If you consider it a win, then obviously good result again for him. And again, we do see the same thing where he was able to deal out a lot more casualties than expected, this time about 33 percentage points higher than expected. Either way, he's he's definitely doing a lot more damage to Rome than they would like. Yes. But you're starting to see the drawbacks Roman has a very strong hierarchy. They are able to regroup basically overnight and organize themselves while German commanders were still kind of arguing and maybe trying to hold their own ground and kind of trying to represent their own tribes within the Confederation. Also an important thing to note, Rome, once again, we mentioned that the the Battle of the Tudorburg Pass, it's often sometimes portrayed as this shattering, like, and then the Germans never had to worry about the Italians ever again. Case closed. Final answer. You know, we're lock it in. Not the case. It was just basically. It was the. It was the first really big blow. But then after that, it had to be very small guerrilla campaign. Now that Rome was aware that they were a threat, yeah, all they could really do from here was skirmishes and try and pick them off and just harass them. They couldn't take them on in a in an open battle. Another important thing, just to note as a just a little bit of a fact, is. It's not like they didn't have soldiers they could also draft. They, they did have the 28 to 30 odd legions and they lost three overnight or over a weekend. Uh, bad weekend. Yeah. But um, they still have, if you remember, more than 20 plus legions that were retired veteran legionnaires who were sitting at home and if need be can be pulled up. So it's not like this sudden we expect a Germanic horde to come down and conquer through the Alps. It's like they still have quite a few legions left and they can still draw veteran legionnaires if need be if if push comes to shove the roman state has that ability as you were mentioning it's it, you have the loose germanic confederation model and they have all the, the bugs and issues that come with that but the romans can fall back on a lot of very serious veteran soldiers if push comes to shove like really i think arminius's long-term strategy was just like make it more trouble than it's worth i don't think he yes. ever really believed that and his his tactics and his strategies reflected i don't think he really believed that he could really defeat Rome. He could just make it so that it was too much trouble to take Germany, they'd just leave it alone. I suppose that was the hope. Now we're going to go back to Tiberius and talk about what he's going to do about the Germanic situation. Just a note about the history machine. The history machine does not like Tiberius. We don't have information from him because he doesn't have enough glorious, fantastic battles. He has a lot of campaigns, 
But that's not what the history machine focuses on. The history machine loves like a battle of the Tuberg Forest or it loves a cane. It loves this fighting against the odds. You're a fantastic over the top spur of the moment leader because undeniably Tiberius is the best commander Rome has right now to offer. But he's the best for different reasons. It is more strategic reasons than it is tactical reasons. And the history machine is so much more focused on being a tactical genius than a strategic genius. It loves your move that, you know, where you were suddenly able to take out four times your numbers. History machine is like the old school colonial historian who just loves, who loves a clear winner-loser battle. It does not like skirmishes. Guerrilla campaigns. It does not like, yeah, just drawn out things where neither side accepts battle and it's, it's basically wars of, you know, resources and attrition. It likes the clean cut battles. Yeah, it really, really, really does. So what Tiberius is going to do, he's going to take over from this shit show (laughs) and decide he's going to do a slow, planned, calculated push into Germany. He's going to shore up the territory. Now, I'm going to say this as well. He's going to be loved by troops because if if there's anything the troops love, it's you don't waste their lives. (laughs) So he's going to have everything really tight. We're not going to have people just wandering into forests. Uh, We're going to make sure that everything is tightened up, that it's really slow, methodical it's it's planned it's calculated and there's this gradual just solidifying of the borders and making sure that everything is a-okay nobody does anything wild or drastic or over the top looking at you germanicus and don't do something with some kind of kind of daring decisive victory here we're not going to go we're not going to go insane but there is a crazy amount of merit in looking at Tiberius and saying that he had the ability and the self-control not to go, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get 10 legions and I'm going to march into Germany. I'm going to find this Arminius and I'm going to bring his head back on a pike. You know, it's it's that would have been a really Scipio Africanus over the top, amazing individual charismatic leader thing to do. But he's not. He's super calculated, slow, methodical, blue-blooded commander. And that has so much value in itself and in the sense of you're not, as I said, wasting lives. You're shoring up your borders and you're making sure everything is under control. And the history machine hates that. So eventually Augustus is going to pass away. Tiberius is the obvious heir. We also still have Agrippa Posthumus. Now Agrippa Posthumus was exiled to an island similar to uh, Julia. And the reasoning was he may have been involved in a potential coup. And he was also very strange, angry, violent, prone to outbursts individual. He wasn't quite sound of mind, a little bit unnerving. He was just shooed away to an island, into exile and left there. To go back to our Augustus, but he's going to pass away. And as he passes away, Tiberius is going to rush to him. And he may or may not arrive before he dies. And uh, he's going to be there either just after the deathbed or just before the deathbed happens. But now we have a situation where Tiberius who was the adopted son, he is now the new emperor of Rome. So when they bring the body of Augustus back for the funeral, they're a, it's about a two-week uh, journey, he's in the countryside, a centurion rides up just during the, the ceremony and goes, uh, your orders have been carried out, Tiberius, and Agrippa Posthumus is dead. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit here. Tiberius kind of goes, well, I didn't murder him. <laughs> and, and then it's like, well, if I didn't, then who? Who do we solve this, this murder mystery? So, to go back to the murder mystery, we mentioned Livia (laughs) earlier. Now, conveniently, almost anyone who wasn't named Tiberius, or who wasn't killed by a horse rolling over on them, died of very mysterious circumstances, and or was murdered the moment um, Augustus was dead. So, Livia has the means to put her son, her first biological son, 
in charge of this whole empire. She has the motive to do that. She has the means in the sense of she's a very wealthy, powerful woman who have access to poisons and to assassins and to spies. All of the other successors aren't her children. So it's a great way to make sure that the Claudians get to inherit this dynasty in the long term. So this leads to the whole credence that Livia super murdered just about everybody who got in her way who wasn't named Tiberius. The final straw here is Agrippa Posthumus Agrippa Jr. is murdered by a centurion. The centurion's like, but you gave me orders to do it. And then it's like, oh, you must have gotten bad orders. I wonder who could have possibly done that. And now we have a situation where it's just Tiberius and it's going to be Tiberius's close-knit family who are married into the Julians. But it's like the Tiberius now and his, you know, his son, Drusus, and his nephew, Germanicus. It's, it's, these are the two figures who are going to be who, who are going to be fairly much the ones we're going to the dynastic line is Tiberius is unquestionably the person in charge but it's super super convenient that Livia may or may not have murdered everybody otherwise you know the ultimate level of luck once Tiberius becomes the emperor he immediately goes to the Praetorian Guard and he offers them a big bonus and he's like it's time for your pay increase you know who you know butters your bread make sure everything's okay um Uh, I'm the guy who's going to be in charge. Remember that. And this is going to be a very, very common theme whenever emperors come into power. They're just going to find the equivalent of the Secret Service and go, here's a paycheck increase. And that's going to become pretty much um, an expected as opposed to a bonus. It's like, well, there's a new emperor. I think it's time for, uh, for a pay rise. So they get a pay rise and they're very happy and smug with it. Now, if you remember, these guys are still messing around. They're pretty much playing Boy Scouts of America outside of Rome, you know, because they're that legion who doesn't really have anything really to do other than police the streets of Rome every now and then and probably extort some money and smash some skulls and make sure that the imperial family is fine. But those legions that Tiberius had up north in Germany who are risking their lives and other legions up near the Balkans who are doing very similar things are like, hold on a second, we're up here actually trying to deal with threats, actually policing borders, actually doing a job, and you decide to give a pay increase to these guys? So they immediately mutiny. Drusus and a member of the Praetorian Guard, Sejanus, who's going to be important later, they head out towards the Balkans and they try and like deal with these mutineers. Now they get super lucky. They land, they're like, let's talk about this. We're going to walk with it. Uh, we're going to see what we can do. We can probably solve your problems. And then there's a lunar eclipse and suddenly the legionaries look at that as an omen and they go, maybe we shouldn't have mutinied. And they go, like, <laughs> score one for us. Now... <laughs> Germanicus isn't as lucky. He heads up to Germany, has the same problem, has a bunch of Italians that are really, really furious about the idea they didn't get a pay increase, that this isn't really right, it's super unfair, they're the ones actually risking their lives, and yet these um, the, the Secret Service equivalent are getting the pay increases. But he does, without the benefit of a lunar eclipse, the equivalent of calming their nerves. And he kind of chastises them, talks them down. But an important thing is he brings his wife, And he brings his then small little son, who we'll refer to as Caligula. And Caligula is a nickname that the legionnaires gave to him. So he he brings his family and they look at this little tiny guy in this little legionnaire uniform. And Caligula literally means like little booties. So they're like, oh my God, look at these tiny sandals. Oh, he's so adorable. Oh, he's our mascot now. And it's like, oh, what were we mutineering over? And uh, <laughs> history is so stupid sometimes. It is, it is. It Cute is. babies and lunar eclipses. Just yeah. like <laughs> these are reasons to not to keep the Pax Romana intact. Now, the 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 checkmate move of Germanicus to solidify these legions from their mutineering ways is because just to keep my family, my little Caligula and my wife safe, I'm going to give them to a Gaulish family who I can trust, who I know will take care of them. And they're like, oh no, you can't do that to us. You're telling us that we're not as trustworthy as a bunch of Gauls that you're like friends with. Oh, that's the worst thing ever. 
no, please, we'll be fine. We'll be good. <laughs> so from this point, Germanicus kind of goes, you know what, guys, do you still want your bonus? And they're like, oh, we definitely want our bonus. That's what we were rioting over. And it's like, well, what we can do is let's just invade these parts of Germany, try and find our minions, get some damage done. And uh, whatever you loot and plunder along the way, that's going to be your bonus. So that's going to lead us for Germanicus's dynamic style. That's going to lead us to the Battle of Idavistio. Carl, do you want to talk about Germanicus's fine, fine work here now, uh, just invading into Germany? And um, once again, the legions are going to hit. They're going to hit back, or they're going to do what they do best. Really, they are. And yeah, just looking at at this period. It's probably lucky Augustus is dead at this point because this kind of this couple of run of years for Germanicus, he'd probably be seen as a serious political threat by <laughs> by anyone else because he he continues Tiberius's like slow, sensible, steady march through Germany, starts building up and securing territory. He recovers the eagles of the destroyed legions from the yeah. Teutoburg Forest. So like political points there again. Mm-hmm. He slowly works his way into this battle, which is, as we said, like the only thing that the thing that Arminius does not want is open battle. But this steady push and this really calculated push has just given Arminius no more room to maneuver. And he is forced to accept an open battle here. And uh, and it it does not go well for him. Mm -hmm. The history machine saw this actually as basically 50-50 odds. Like, it still thought Arminius's army was very good. Now, part of this as well could be Roman propaganda may have propped up the state they were in. At this point, they were probably fairly desperate because otherwise they wouldn't have taken the battle. This was their last kind of, their last stand, basically. Villages are being burned and places are being looted and all of this is actually yeah. becoming the bonus pay for pissed off exactly. legionaries. And, and this was, this was like Arminius's penultimate battle and the next one really was just kind of a doomed last stand um, a few days later. Uh, just with the remnants of what he had left after this. So History Machine had this 50-50 slightly error in Marinus' favour. Uh, Germanicus won. He dealt out way more casualties than expected. 65 percentage points higher casualties. Took about 6.5 percentage points fewer casualties himself. So this was... Very close. Yeah. yeah. So no. this was really, like Tudorburg Forest, like way bigger casualties uh, on the losing side than expected and this is really much more like aggressive and, from the romans yeah and like as we said the romans can take a big loss and come back at you arminius couldn't like this was it he he had one more kind of final battle after this but it just wasn't uh, like it it had no hope of success they were already pretty much mm. defeated by the time this battle started um while germanicus this is where he gets the title germanicus now because he's doing so well in germany um tiberius kind of going this guy is a bit of a problem. As you mentioned, Augustus may have been like, well, he's wonderful and we're propping him up similar to the, the Gaius and the Lucius. But Tiberius really looks at it and says, you've kind of covered yourself in enough glory here. How about you let my son, your brother, because the adopt and the connection, the, the usual kind of history thing. How about you let your brother Drusus, who you really like, clear up a little bit in Germany as well. Just do a little bit of tidying up and maybe he'll get some wins to his name or some great glory and you come back to Rome and stop winning and stop stop, stop having these fantastic over-the-top wins that are making me look terrible. And it, it also, this is a real insult to Tiberius' pride because remember, he spent a, low, a slow, long, calculated time getting these Germanic legions into order to police the borders only to, you know, to save X amount of their lives by not spending them recklessly only to go they mutiny on me and then they join the guy who is my nephew slash son to head into enemy territory be super risky and come back with some spoils 
it's it's a horrible <sighs> I gave you a really nice thing to do and you you mucked it up somewhere along the way here. I'm not too impressed. Now he's he's a super ultra mega blue blooded person, so you know, he he probably spits on poor people. But <laughs> but um but Germanicus is one to look out for now. He's he's covered himself in quite a bit of just overall all glory. With Tiberius in mind now, not gelling as well with Germanicus, for Germanicus doing what the history machine loves as opposed to Tiberius is almost inverse in what's happening there. And Germanicus then heads up towards the Balkans, he's heading up north and he's meant to pacify some areas. Now, this is where he comes into contact with a very good friend of Tiberius. This is a man called Piso. Now, Piso is also super, super blue-blooded. This is why he's such good friends with Tiberius. And Piso has a few legions stationed in Antioch, which is near modern-day, uh, it's, it's near kind of Turkey, just along the, the coast. He's stationed there with a few legions, and they're effectively languishing around, having a lot of fun. Piso is, as I mentioned, is like super, super hyper-conservative mega-Roman. So he, he doesn't like the Greeks, and he definitely doesn't like any of the successor Greek kingdoms. He's like, you're not even Greek. You're only pretending to be Greek. You're like pseudo-Greek. So it's, what a way to totally piss off the, the locals. Now, contrary to that, Germanicus visits Athens and gives them a, a nice little, you know, clap of like, Athens is great. Isn't it wonderful? This is such a great place. And they all kind of look, like German- Germanicus is a very charming individual who likes to play to people's customs, similar to Scipio Africanus did the same. It's go to a place, adopt their customs, say hi, wear the robes, have some fun, you know, eat eat, eat their meat, drink their wine, have fun, be a friendly individual and a, a charismatic ambassador. And he's loved for it. He really makes the phrase come to mind, when in Rome, do what the Romans do, when elsewhere, do as they do. Um, he doesn't get along with Piso because Germanicus is dealing with some issues up north and he asks Piso, please send me some of these idle legions who are just loitering about in Antioch. And Piso, being super blue-blooded, is kind of like, I take orders from Tiberius. I don't care who you think you are. I am so blue-blooded that I'll listen to what your dad says. I'm not going to do something just because you said to do it. From this point onward now, Germanicus and Piso just hate each other. Piso is that annoying, arrogant, xenophobic kind of character who is really strong with the Roman moral traditions and the really stoic, blue-blooded kind of way and does not like Greeks. And then Germanicus is the carefree, can-do attitude, I love foreign culture, let's have, let's have a lot of fun situation. And another good example, Germanicus is going to head to Alexandria. This is in Egypt. Similarly, as I said, when in Rome, do the Romans do. When elsewhere, do as they do. He adopts Greek clothes and he hangs around Alexandria and he is an excellent ambassador. The kind of the Greek culture that now lives in Alexandria. Remember, this place is founded by Alexander the Great and the Ptolemies ruled there. They go, this guy is wonderful. It's not just like a foreign occupant occupier this is somebody who likes our culture likes our language likes what we do we really really love him now this really triggers tiberius even further because he goes all right this guy is popular but he's so popular he's even popular in egypt and the last time somebody was popular in egypt they were called antony and they had enough resources to continue a big civil war so as much as tiberius is now kind of paranoid at this point it's like this guy is a good commander um, he's not as meticulous and slow in calculating and planning as I am but he's much more dynamic and he's very very ludicrously popular this is going to be an issue and almost out of nowhere Germanicus falls deathly ill and he dies now on his deathbed he goes Piso poisoned me <laughs> now he may have done <laughs> this 
This episode is just, I'm getting flashbacks to some of my worst ever Crusader Kings games. This is just really talented, impressive people just suddenly dying out of nowhere in shady conditions. The shadiest of shady. That's all this is. Yeah. Just one after the other. So, uh, so, so, Germanicus, Piso did it. And then it's like, well, what proof? And it's like, well, apparently there was like witchcraft and spells beneath my bed and I'm fairly sure Piso did it. And Piso's like, ah, Hmm, maybe. No, I didn't poison you, but I'm not even going to stoop that low. I wouldn't even say that. Now, this is a horrible situation for Tiberius because Germanicus is is um is very much he's a superhero. He's a wonder star. They're all horribly the Roman public are like uh, are just in sheer grief of losing this super popular commander who is the next in line, going to be the next emperor of Rome. And they go, We've lost this guy. And Tiberius isn't really doing anything. Piso returns to Rome and he's just hanging around, having dinner parties as if nothing is going on. And the public is furious about this. Now, remember, Tiberius and Piso are super blue blooded. So they don't give, you know, a fiddler's fart about what the general, you know, messy masses are up to. Initially, the public are calling to Tiberius. You go, you have got to arrest Piso. You've got to charge him for this crime. This is horrible. On his deathbed, he said that Piso poisoned him. What more evidence do you need? This has to be done. Now, Tiberius makes one of his biggest mistakes ever. He hesitates because he goes, I'm not going to do something just because a bunch of poor people tell me to do it. And by doing that, he kind of protects Piso. And then the poor start rioting and destroying statues, specifically statues of Piso that are around the place. They're causing a lot of havoc. And then Tiberius kind of turns and goes, wait a second, maybe he should be on trial. And it's kind of a, a little too little too late. You look like you're connected to this assassination because you're protecting the man that we're sure assassinated him. But Tiberius then approaches Piso, and Piso, your time is up, and um, Piso then commits suicide as opposed to having a trial. The damage is done, though, because Germanicus's name is is now kind of legendary, and you know he's for he's to an extent forever young, and his family are still adored. Remember, little Caligula with his little booties. Tiberius is in a bit of a pickle because he's no longer really liked that much anymore. Um, now we've had our big battles, we've had our setup, and at this point. Tiberius is going to live in, on an island called Capri off the coast of Italy. He's going to just uh, kind of, he initially goes there a little bit to relax and to calm down. And then as he stays there, he stays there gradually longer and longer and longer. And eventually it's a permanent self-imposed exile. Now he's still ruling. He's still sending letters to Rome. He's about 60 miles away, but he's living on this nice little island with Praetorian guard and some rich dinner guests and doing what he does. Now, this is where the real sadistic, horrible kind of Tiberius comes from. Now, we mentioned earlier as well, a guy called Sejanus. Now, Sejanus is now the head of the Praetorian guard as the Praetorian guard is left in charge in Rome. And when he's left to his own devices, he very much methodically dismembers what's left of Germanicus's family. The only one who stays alive in this whole little debacle is... The only male, we'll say, is um, Caligula because he's wise enough as a young teenager just to keep his mouth shut and not say anything about it, not be vocal, not give out against Sejanus, play it very cool, look like he's not a threat, just play it very, very, very cool. So at this point, as I said, Tiberius is kind of almost retired. It's a kind of a semi-retirement. Now, it's it's kind of wonderful. This is where you realise he's, he's a very relatable kind of person because it, it's it seems so natural to go, I'm just going to retire to an island, I'm going to enjoy fine food, I'm going to live off the coast, I'm going to have a beach outside, and Tiberius is going to start pursuing very, you know, pursuing mysteries, actually. It's quite a it's quite a fun little... <laughs> it's like a little, as I said, a little kind of semi-retirement. He's involved very fringe in, in politics. He sends the odd message here or there. But he's going to do things like um, a huge tooth is found in Turkey. 
and he's going to have it and it's going to be claimed to be a giant's tooth and it's very likely some kind of dinosaur or mastodon and he's going to recreate a skeleton to go this is what this is the life-size giant would have been and he's also going to flee to uh, the beaches of Leon when apparently some sea monsters, which were almost certainly whales, were washed up on shore. No one had seen them before. And he's like, what's this mystery? Let's check it out. So he's got this real David Attenborough feel to him of like, this is incredible. Wow. So fun. Uh, even to the extent where he got involved in a murder trial where uh, a noble woman was pushed through a window and he went full-blown Columbo and solved the mystery. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like, shouldn't you be emperoring? He's like, no, this this is so much more fun. I love doing the, the, the whole murder mystery thing. So he has those wonderful qualities, but he's very likely going to be uh, Blackbeard because when he's living on this island... This is, if you, you can look it up, I'm not going to talk about it, but the sexual perversion is through the roof. I'm not even going to mention, for for the safety of viewers, in case anybody is listening in the background here, any kind of warnings, I'm not even going to talk about what, what's involved. But it seems to be that the man becomes old, paranoid, and becomes a very, very deviant individual. And then has the young Caligula, whose name is synonymous with shenanigans and with um, immoral activity to live with them as a teenager. So Caligula's brought out to the island, they're living together. Tiberius is gradually getting older. He seems to be getting more perverse and sinister. Now, once again, this could be slander, but Sejanus is kind of ruling as the head of the Praetorian Guard in Rome. He's doing his own thing. He's like, I'm probably next in line. This is how it's going. It's all up for Sejanus. When out of the blue, Tiberius sends a letter to Sejanus that he has to read out loud in public. And it's a letter effectively saying, yeah, don't trust Sejanus, have him executed and tried. It's like, oh no. So Sejanus is murdered. And then like his body is just dumped. And, and, and then it becomes very apparent that after all of his machinations, after killing loads of the Imperial family, after thinking that his position was really solidified, the head of the Praetorian Guard is kind of out, almost, not literally out of the blue, but Tiberius is like, that's enough. I'm getting rid of you. you you've caused a lot more hassle than good at this point. I'm, I'm clearing you out. Now, we have spoken a lot about uh, Tiberius and he's about to die. So he passes away on the island of Capri. Now, this is a funny little might have happened, may not have happened. He may have just passed away and then Caligula is declared like the new emperor. Or he may have been mostly dead and not quite passed away. And then the Praetorian Guard, whose only job is to protect the emperor, goes... (laughs) Let's smother his ass with a pillow. <laughs> so, so if that's the case... He was obsessed with murder mysteries. It's what he would have wanted. I suppose, yeah. <laughs> so so there's a chance that he was almost dead. Caligula's name, and they go, maybe we should just finish him off. We are all alone here on an island. But long story short, Caligula gets to become the emperor. Now, Caligula returns to Rome in spectacular fashion. He's almost immediately loved. He declares to the Senate, I'm not going to have any shenanigans with you. He publicly burns prescription lists and says these days are over. Now, he publicly burns them, but secretly keeps a copy, so (laughs) defeats the purpose. Uh, But Caligula, in summary, was a fantastic emperor until he wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) So he initially has loads of games, lots of fun. Um, he he is like pandering to the public. He's pandering to to the Senate. Uh, he's very 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 much admired, and it's seen as this wonderful. Okay, he's he's actually a competent and successful and adequate successor. The only other male kind of sitting around who potentially could have been emperor at the time is a fellow called Claudius. To talk a tiny bit about Claudius, Claudius almost certainly suffered from some kind of affliction that we could diagnose today. Might have been cerebral palsy. Because it was noted that he dragged his foot, he would use to stop and slow and slur his speech and he may just stare off into space and he could be caught drooling at the dinner table. And he was considered 
by the royal family is this kind of almost, oh, you kind of put him away. He's, uh, you know, he's not a threat to purge. Put it that way. <laughs> they decide at any point, this man shouldn't be purged. He's got a bit of intelligence. He's still part of, you know, the imperial family, but he's just kind of there in the background. Now, it'll be important because he'll come along a little bit later, but it's just to mention that Claudius, with all of um, his slights that he's given and that he's assumed to be a, a, a drooling, babbling idiot, he's just hanging around. Just to go back to Caligula, I will jump immediately from Caligula. We're going to end him very quickly because he doesn't get involved in any major battles. He doesn't get involved in anything. So we don't really have any data in the history machine. It's just important just to mention him as the connection between Tiberius and the emperor after Caligula. So to talk a teeny bit about him, this is probably one of the coolest things that has been done in a very, very, very long time. And to even to pull it off today would be super ballsy. It was apparently said that the odds of Caligula becoming emperor were the odds of him riding his horse across the sea. So to do that, he sets up a stunt where he ties a load of boats together across a bay. He mounds them with earth. He wears Alexander the Great's armor and he marches across the sea. So I just had to mention that because it's like, wow. (laughs) Talk about being petty. But it's it's kind of like, here's the self-fulfilling prophecy, you know. (laughs) These child stars always go a bit weird, like after a while. Remember, the, the guy, as I said, is going to spiral into perversion or whatever. He might have picked it off his uncle. Uh, he's eventually not going to be liked and um, and that's not going to go well for him. But I just wanted to mention that initially at the start, he's got this crazy outlandish uh, setup. He inherits a colossal treasury that he lavishly spends on games and events. And then eventually he loses his popularity, spirals into the megalomaniac kind of ways and is killed. And if you want to keep record in this, I'll tell you in a moment. The head of the Praetorian Guard... <laughs> who apparently had a very effeminate high-pitched voice when uh, eventually he gets really pissed off with Caligula but he's the guy who kills him he's like all right you make fun of my voice one more time and he just stabs and kills him so I always like to imagine it's some kind of a Mike Tyson-esque voice (laughs) of an absolute brutal murderer you know super fighting machine and just go ah but you've got a funny voice it's like oh yeah well you're stabbed now so (laughs) so Caligula is passed away and the Praetorian Guard, uh, if, you, if you're keeping track, uh, there have been three emperors. They may, they've killed at least one, may have killed two. <laughs> so, so they ain't got exactly the best track record. Their next step is they decide, all right, we're going to put a puppet in charge. Who's the puppet we can possibly use? The puppet is Claudius. There's art of this, which is wonderful. And it's the idea that he was meant to be hiding behind a curtain. They find him and he's fairly sure he's going to be stabby, stabby, murder, murder. But instead they go, no, you are now the Imperator. You are now the Augustus. You're the guy in charge. And they present him with the hopes that he's going to be some kind of a puppet king and the Praetorian Guard are going to rule through him. Now, this is where the genius of Claudius comes into play because Claudius may have been perceived as this babbling idiot but similar to Caligula he was just quiet along the side he was meant to have a gambling addiction so that was also viewed as a vice of like oh he's that bad he's got a gambling addiction but the gambling (laughs) really shows itself here in the sense of he becomes the emperor and he turns out to be very very competent in his job and suddenly the Praetorian Guard go wait a second you were meant to be just some kind of absolute uh, you know puppet and he's like no no, I'm, I'm not really a puppet. I'm actually going to govern and rule very, very, very well. And uh, I'm going to govern very, very, very well and actually be probably the most competent emperor since Augustus. He saw so many dashing, clearly talented people come before him. He knew not to let the talent shine until he was securely in power. Like he yes. <laughs> played the long con, it feels like. So Claudius, as I said, uh, he's, he's portrayed as this kind of disabled in- individual, but suddenly you kind of go, well, he's meant to be the emperor. But he gets a kind of a little bit of a nice 
nice little bit of a successful story because there's going to be a short campaign in Britain and Claudius is going to be involved with it on the fringe side. But Cahill, if you like, let's talk about you know this little expansion into Britain, the first time since Julius Caesar, where they're going to deal with the Britons and Claudius is going to kind of staple his name onto the end of this and go, fantastic, you know, I have a victory to my name as well. But let's talk about the Battle of Medway. So this is our... I think it's our first battle of the British campaign in our database. And I suppose probably the largest scale one we have in the database that there isn't too much, but it really, it's kind of back to what the Roman Empire does well, which is just taking on big but unorganized armies, which has the dual effect of like, they know they can win, but it looks so impressive on paper, where you just have this massive British army, but totally disorganized, can't do anything uh, against the Romans. So the history machine had this as 50-50, you have this very competent, organized Roman army against much higher numbers, again, possibly politically exaggerated, attacking across a river as well, with no bridge, adding to the challenge. And uh, yeah, Romans just kind of deal with it just fine. They they were able to send units across the river that the Britons definitely didn't see coming. Even a lot of the Romans didn't expect to be able to do it. They were just expecting a standoff and didn't expect it to really work. <laughs> some of the, some of the subcommanders and so on. So they were able to send that across, deal some damage. It was a bit of back and forth. It was a bit drawn out. There weren't huge casualties on either side because neither side could commit its full force. Even though the armies were large, they were kind of neutralized by the terrain. Yeah. So as as a result of that, the you know the casualties are lower than the history machine expected. Twenty eight percentage points lower dealt by the Romans and seven percentage points lower dealt by the Britons. The proportionally to their army size, the Romans probably lost more actual units, but because the British army was so much larger, mm-hmm. it was a much bigger blow for them. Like they didn't they lost maybe three percent of the army, but it was a huge army. Uh so even keeping this in mind, and it's probably something that listeners might be sitting there going, oh, the army wasn't that size, that's just Roman propaganda talking about it. But you see, the history machine is actually, tr- because it's trained on this kind of a database, and we know that it's meant to be tribal troops against Roman legionnaires, and Roman you know, historians are so constantly biased when, and inflating the numbers, that bias is self-correcting. Yeah, it's it, it's not seeing it as a big underdog win for the Romans. It's actually just saying like, the Romans, eh, like 50-50, they'll probably win it. <laughs> you know, they certainly won't get wiped out by this. It's not expecting huge casualties on the Roman side, definitely. Which is like, oh, cool. Yeah, so it's funny that it comes with numbers. You go like, oh, the numbers, they're, they're so outnumbered. Or, or this crazy volume of, of Britons here. And, you know, the, uh, the, the Romans don't stand a chance. And the history machine is like, listen, I've seen this before. Yeah. The, the history machine has gotten sceptical to the to the numbers the Romans put out, as have we. But this is really kind of back to Rome classic. They had the they had the fear with Gaul that they would reach this level of sophistication that they could take on Rome and they hit them before that could happen. That kind of level of sophistication started happening with Arminius. Yes. Um, maybe they didn't have the resources to fully support it, but they had the tactics and they had the strategies. But this is just going back to this tribe has had limited contact with Rome. We know how to attack them. They don't know how to hit us back and it's a very just straightforward fairly simple campaign um at least for the moment against the britons definitely now as i mentioned uh claudius is going to kind of tag along he's going to head to britain and he's going to bring troops with them so his name will kind of be attached to this but funnily i just wanted to note he brings elephants with them which is just unnecessary but also kind of like just wanted to let you know these are elephants and we brought them to britain because we could so Claudius, after this, 
he gets this great reputation as like you know the the tamer of Britannia and there's wonderful art that's uh, like st- uh, like stylized sculptures of Claudius who is meant to you know have some kind of disabilities as this rugged amazing man who's like wrestling Britannia to the ground of like oh I, you know it's like wow what a daring fantastic individual oh his military victories are so wonderful <laughs> but, uh, and again history machine is like Listen, it might have been 50-50 chance, but even if Britain won, it would have been a Fyrick victory. Like, it was... <laughs> they probably they probably lost fewer men in, like, by taking a conservative defeat rather than going out and committing and trying to win. Yeah. Now, we're going to wrap this up fairly soon because, uh, as you said, we've been jumping from emperor to emperor, but ultimately, they're not actually involved very heavily in battles. Once Augustus passed away and Tiberius passes away, you, you don't really see the emperors. and They're delegating this to, to commanders who... You know, spoiler alert, long time in the Roman um, in the Roman Empire, every time you get a very good commander, they'll probably threaten to be the next emperor. So it's it's this constant cycle of, um, you know, new emperor, you know, possibly even new dynasty, new setup. But because this episode is about Augustus, we do want to cover the whole house of Caesar, that this is this is the dynasty that before, you know, when he dies, he's like, I hope to set this up and this is going to last for however long it's going to last. But he had set the pieces in motion of like, this is what I want the successors to be. This is what I want to, to get into place. And we're going to look at the last person in this family who's going to take over. So Claudius, as I said, had that wonderful victory in Britain. So he's remembered kind of very fondly. And he's and I won't say he's necessarily loved, but he's a very competent, capable emperor. And you go, right, that's, that's a big, big, big win. Um, but he eventually dies by mysterious circumstances, almost certainly poisoned by his son, Nero. Now, if Nero makes sense, if the name is familiar, this is the fella who's meant to have uh, played the fiddle while Rome burned. Now, he couldn't have played the fiddle because it didn't exist, but he played the lyre a lot. Lyre is a different uh, stringed instrument. But uh, Nero is a very, very interesting individual to have taken over. He is initially, like Caligula, immensely popular. But gradually he loses that popularity. The Boudicca revolt happens during his time. He doesn't take personal control of the armies. He is way more interested in being a public, artistic performer, an actor, a performer, getting involved in Greek competitions, winning first prize and medals and, and various little accolades and writing and composing songs and living this really carefree bohemian lifestyle. But you're the emperor of goddamn Rome. Now, I'm going to go a little bit in, into him because... He spirals into megalomaniac. Rome undergoes a big fire. Areas that are leveled, he decides he's going to build it into like his own personal mansion. And that really upsets the masses. Uh, he's got this colossal statue he's going to build of himself. He decides to start naming, um, you know, very, he decides to start naming things after him. For example, there's like a gladiatorial school that's known as the Caesarian School that was set up by Julius Caesar. And he renames it after him instead. So it's, it's all of these things. Of, he's super, incredibly, ridiculously vain. He spirals into horrible horrible behaviors and practices that is possibly a result of having absolute total power an example is he um, finds a man who looks like his dead wife that he kicked who was pregnant to death and then felt really sorry about after he did it and decides uh, he's going to get this man and uh, surgically remove his um, parts and go this man is now my wife uh, it, it's it's but he's doing this because he's a, a crazy megalomaniac who just wants and he will take what he wants and he will perform what he wants and he will live this heathenistic over the top mad lifestyle without a care in the world for slaves or people or anyone else. He will do what he wants when he wants, ruin lives, rig competitions. So eventually, the Senate declares Nero as a as a public enemy officially. 
he flees and he contacts a famous gladiator and says you know how to kill people do you mind stabbing me to death because I think you know I could make a bloody mess of this thing and the gladiator says uh, no uh, this is a gladiator that would have uh, hung around with him so it's it's this whole thing of he sets up this wonderful almost Sulla-like retirement but he hasn't retired yeah. <laughs> um, but in the end he will um, he will die by suicide and this will be the official end of the line of Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar and the titles of Caesar and Augustus, these are going to continue to be used for the next 2,000 years after after these events. But the actual Julian-Claudian family is officially over with the end of Nero. So Augustus's grand plan, the amazing, fantastic, ridiculously skilled diplomat and leader within these generations, but so it will, it will simply go Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius and then Nero. Five emperors in, and then it's over. The line has ended. Now, if you look at some Chinese dynasties and other other dynasties throughout history, some of them end after one generation. Alexander the Great ended after his generation. His empire was conquered and then it immediately splintered. Now, you can make an argument that his father owned a kingdom and they owned a kingdom and you've got a long succession there. But you can look at like a Mongol conquest or you can look at um, uh, shoguns or you can look at other other kind of imperial dynasties and you can see some of them last a very long time. Some of them don't last the person that assembled them. Some of them immediately splinter faction. Some of them immediately fall apart. But some of them can hold it together. And this was one that maybe Augustus thought he could hold this one together. Now the Senate is gone. They're, they're a bunch of paper tigers. They can't do what they're meant to do. They are just a bunch of rich men who are performing ritual and actually don't really have any power and all the power actually rests in the hands of whoever is this Augustus and then he appoints whoever is his Caesar along the line and this is the the ultimate legacy of Augustus it is it is the final part we can say about him after all of this ridiculous amazing life he has led his dynasty will fall apart it just tapers off but other dynasties will jump in other emperors will take control you move on to your, your Marcus Aureliuses and your Commoduses and they also have their same kind of problems but the Roman history as a whole is, is fascinating but we want to focus on the commanders and this guy was so important Augustus in terms of what he was able to achieve even though he was a very inferior commander so Cahal We've covered quite a bit, and I'd say this episode was much more information-heavy as it was battle and data-heavy, but it was the only way to kind of close the chapter on Augustus. We couldn't just leave it of, he wins at the Battle of Actium, and then he starts a dynasty. It's like, well, hold on a second. What happens after that? What are the situations? So, because this is a two-parter episode, and we have mentioned people in the last episode, just so there's no confusion, so we're going to do another top five in terms of commanders. So, Cahal, please, coming in at number five for this two-parter episode. Number five would rank higher depending how you rank um, Battles, uh, Battle of Pontus Longi. This is uh, Arminius. Wins over expectation of 0.13. Okay. Um, so, you know, reg- that's if you regard that one as a draw. Yes. If you regard it as a win, this will be higher. This would put him um, up near near to the top. But I suppose this is more a fair reflection because I think he fits the category of you know, what we said the history machine doesn't like, which is a better strategist than anything. He didn't have that many outright battles. It was more so skirmishes, more so just harassing the Roman armies. He didn't succeed in the end, but he probably did as good a job as he could have against the Roman Empire at its peak. Yeah, 0.13 wins over expectation against a very, very tough army is good. His casualties dealt over expectation is very high. It's uh, 38 percentage points above expectation. 
But in the end, I think probably mainly because of his last battle when he was finally, they were desperate enough to be forced into open battle. This is where this comes from. His casualty suffered over expectation is 18 percentage points above expectation. So he did take, in the end, a lot more than expected, mainly due to his final battle. Now, just to talk a tiny bit about Arminius, sometimes referred to as Hermann by the Germans, for a lot of um, German people, this guy is like the starting founding father of what would be, you know, the German country. You look at him, you look at Charlemagne, you look at, a, you know, there's a, there's a few other, Frederick the Great, there's these big figures that pop up and he's probably the first one. And he's really held close to heart in German history as this idea of like, he's this, he is this charismatic, incredible individual fighting for German liberty and freedom. And he'll, he'll, he'll always be viewed that way. And it's just the way, the, the same way of, if we were to talk about the likes of a Brian Baru in, in Irish history, it's the same idea. You go, I probably wasn't a great commander, but like, he's very important for our history, you know? Yeah. So he has one of the most famous battles in history. And ultimately, he doesn't really win against the Italians. The Romans come, come back from it and are able to kind of recuperate and recover the standards. He doesn't conquer territories of the empire, but you could argue that the whole action of it steadied the advancement of the Roman legionnaires. But you could also make the, the argument that that was the policy of Augustus. The, the empire was big enough. It should be policed. It Maybe it should slowly, gradually grow as opposed to this rapid advancement that they were so used to. Yeah, there is a bit of chicken and egg with, with this one, whether, you know, whether it was already happening or whether they started taking this more steady policy because of this, you know, I don't know, rebellion or, you know, counterattack. Basically, just basically trying to stop the Romans from advancing further. Def- definitely, just, you know, from a storytelling perspective, a really a really good uh, general, but... Uh... You know what it is? It's, it's a battle that is, it's, it's important, but... At the time, I cannot imagine if you could get in a time machine and talk to Arminius or talk to Augustus and say, what's the most important battle that might be remembered? They're like, oh, the, the Tudorburg Pass. And they're like, wait a second, they're going to be talking about this for 2,000 years. It's like, yes, they will. That's how important this is going to be. The same way that the likes of your Battle of Hastings or, or um, some other battles that mightn't be as significant mm-hmm. as they're supposed to be, but they're just remembered because of what the future holds later and can somehow try and trace a link back to it. Yeah, they have that kind of nearly kind of myth-making element to them. Um, Just because they are so significant, I guess, in the story told of how such and such a country began. You know, this it it was probably like the first German confederation. Germany has had a lot of different iterations of what it's been over the last 2,000 years, but this was maybe the first time it it had any kind of unification. Actually, here's a little fun fact I forgot to mention uh, after the Battle of the Tudorberg Pass. Once that annihilation of the three legions happened uh, Augustus looks around and goes wait a second where are all my bodyguards from and they go Germany it's like you need to get these men out of here I need to find new bodyguards because <laughs> it turns out I can't trust Germans but um, yeah I just thought I was like oh yeah I forgot to mention that was uh, just a little fun little factoid of as much as he's banging his head against a wall asking Varus to bring back the legions he's also dismissing his personal Germ- Germanic bodyguard because you know they were meant to be some of the best bodyguards and considering the reputation of the Praetorian guards they probably still are so uh, coming in then Cahill please at number four Number four, um, mentioned the previous episode, I think all of the these generals from here are ones that were mostly featured in the prior episode, mm-hmm. is Mark Anthony. Yes. Point one four wins over expectation per battle. Uh, ten battles, five wins. Yeah, just very, you know, good, competent, above average overall, but not by a massive amount. That's very fair. Now, I know we, 
we we have we have gone through them in in earlier ep- we've gone through them in two earlier episodes. Now the second one has more updated data and the, the figures have changed a bit. But we won't harp on too much about him. Long story short, he did well. He's not as good as a commander as the Julius Caesar or the Labinuses or other people who would have been around him at the time who would have been his contemporaries. But he just happens to be the guy who was left around for Agrippa to mop up. So we've talked about him before. But just to put him in place there, he is number four when we look at this list. So then, Cahal, please, coming in at number three. Number three is Aulus Hirtius. Uh, three battles, two wins. Uh, marginally ahead of Mark Anthony with 0.15 wins over expectation per battle. Did take a lot of casualties. Took uh, about 20 percentage points more casualties than he should have. Dealt out about 16% more than expected. But uh, bloodier than you'd like, but kind of gets the job done, is, is the History Machine's verdict. I don't think we'll say much more about him. We'll just move on to number two, please. Number two, and I think we mentioned this last time, kind of a controversial number two, is Augustus himself, uh, who is credited with 10 battles, 7 wins, and uh, 0.19 wins over expectation per battle. But, you know, how how much commanding he actually did on the battlefield is very debatable. It was likely put to other commanders, other generals, while he kind of, um, you know, had man flu and was out with that uh, during the actual battles. But, uh, you know, by the History Machine stats, did well. You know, I know I know. we we, we measure often on the, the tactical ability and, and what it is involved. But I harpered on quite a bit about Augustus in the last episode. You know, he is the title of this episode. But to mention a couple of things about him... You know, he has that skill set, as we said, of making friends, and you could probably drop him into any ancient kingdom, maybe even in contemporary world, and he'll work his way, I'm sure, up some kind of a corporate ladder and get into a position where he mightn't be the brightest person in the room, but he's going to surround himself with them, and that in itself is very, very valuable. For example, Tiberius is not on this list, but Tiberius, at any point where he's not rubbing right with Augustus, doesn't decide to turn against him. Now, he's, he's the apparent heir, not always the apparent heir. But he was considered at the time by the contemporaries the slow, calculating, strategic commander with no Agrippa around that, you know, he very easily could have just walked up to an Augustus like, well, I'm in charge now. Why? Because I'm better commanding the legions than you are. But that doesn't happen. Now, there's a whole imperial family. There could be a lot about that. But Augustus has the gravitas and the ability to stop that. Like, he, he's, he's able to surround himself with more competent people and yet still be the number one guy. Yeah, Augustus is like... The whole theme of this episode could probably be, you know, tall poppies, where it's just anyone with promise gets cut down because they're too much of a threat. <laughs> Augustus is the only one that this who shows this promise and doesn't get cut down. Like Claudius, I think is was the only other other one we mentioned who like had a had a long decent reign, and that was probably because he was disabled and no one saw it coming. Yes, yes. Like Augustus is really the only one who like was kind of anointed as this is going to be the next guy. And he actually followed through on. Yeah, it's very, very impressive, and it's 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 the way he was. Yeah, it is the way able to do it. Even as you mentioned about Claudius, um, no one expected him to be anyway competent. He was going to be a puppet emperor, and then they go, "Wait a minute!" It turns out his intellect is fantastic, um, and he's well able. He's well able to govern and rule. We didn't see this one coming. But anyway, with all that, and we know definitely who's coming in at number one. You're probably able to guess himself just based on who's number two because he's dragging him along to victory along the way. Yeah. Uh, so no, coming at number. <laughs> It's it's the reason Augustus yes. is number two. It's Agrippa <laughs> is number one. Yeah. Uh, three battles, three wins in the database. Uh, 0.32 wins over expectation per battle. Dealt out uh, 24 percentage points more casualties than expected. Took 
26 percentage points fewer casualties than expected. So like very, very good ratio there where he didn't like he he didn't risk his own men, but really did da- damage the enemy army. Um, ex- extremely competent general. You can see why he was so valuable to Augustus. And really, they probably needed one another, I suppose, for their careers. But uh, yeah, in terms of what the history machine values, he's the guy from uh, this two parter. Well, it's wonderful to think the idea that um, eventually Agrippa's going to be his son-in-law. He's going to marry him into the family and he was going to be the father of the next the next heir. So it, he, he was joined in with the Julian clan anyway. Um, he was going to be part of it. It was the idea of the advice given to Augustus that you either kill this man or you make him your son. There's no, you know, you, you can't, it's kind of a, you, you can't not necessarily keep treating him this way, but he's got to have more of an important position here because he could he could turn on you at any point if, if he wanted to. He's got the ability, uh, maybe not the motive to do it, but definitely has the ability. He is the sword that you use to get your imperial conquest along the way. It was a very, very hard man to replace in any sense when he did pass. That could also help to explain some part of the Tudorburg Forest disaster where they lose three legions, but they don't have an Agrippa to fix that problem. If Agrippa lost three legions against a Mark Antony, he could come back with the with the remaining 20 or whatever, whatever you know, whatever he's got left. He can, he can still pull it out of the bag and has the ability to do that, but we don't have an Agrippa. The honourable mentions, I suppose, because we've mentioned them quite a bit in this episode, Tiberius, we don't have enough information to give him a nice round number. He's probably, on the strategic game, a fantastic, long-term, capable commander who's going to save a lot of lives and really police borders and make sure things stay stable and, and constant. But he lacks that certain vigorous, dynamic personality and that je ne sais quoi that makes somebody vibrant and incredible. And the other person we probably should mention is um, Germanicus. And he doesn't really get a mention too much here because he passes away so quickly that yeah, he, he... He only had the one battle. And in that, it was phenomenal. Like he did the... He had the highest casualties dealt over expectation, you know, for his overall career. We just don't have enough data for him. Uh, he does have other campaigns, but we don't have the kind of data that we'd like to feed into the history machine that would give that kind of information. Similar to Tiberius in the sense of he's got these slow, long, lumbering, um, strategic and and small little state, you know, little skirmishes. But like you can, you know, there's there's no historical information for that. It's like was there you know a hundred tribesmen and he sent in a thousand legionnaires and took him out and then set up a camp. You know, you you don't you don't have that information readily available. So we do see the occasional stuff for the Germanicus that he was involved in other campaigns, but we don't have the solid kind of data that we'd normally feed into the history machine to give us a bigger figure. So he he burned out too quickly in a sense of he passed away and he was an unbelievably loved individual and probably would have made a much better emperor than his son Caligula, definitely. And probably maybe not as good on the administrative side as your Claudius, but definitely a hell of a lot better than your Nero's. It's definitely a big historical what if, I think, if he had lived longer. Like if he either would have just naturally been appointed due to the connections he had or if he'd even like he probably had the capability and the popularity to pull like a Sulla or a a Julius Caesar and march back into Rome. But yeah, he was he was taken out (laughs) once, you know, once he showed that promise. I think anyone felt threatened by him made sure that he did not live long enough. It's a very, very funny historical what, or a very, very, very interesting historical what if when you do look at it. Um, you're, you're quite right in that sense. Um, and it's a shame he didn't live longer. But, you know, it's, once again, it's one of these things of, uh, we'll never know. Maybe maybe he could have spiraled into something else. He could have had another accident. It's all th- very, very high speculation. But he's one that gets an honourable mention here. But his 
his likability and his reputation is the major reason why his family end up becoming uh, politically in charge anyway. Like Caligula's reputation is based thoroughly on his father. It's like the whole, you're Germanicus's kid and you're the little mascot that they brought along to the legionnaires as the adorable little, oh, look at look at Germanicus's son. And uh, Tiberius's uh, other son, Drusus, didn't turn out to be a good commander either and, you know, eventually uh, would, would pass away as well. But um, we don't have crazy serious commanders but this is almost a good example of imperium in action or the next few generations of imperial dynasties they don't have to be good generals they they have a line of succession they can surround themselves with good generals they personally don't need to win a battle they just need to find somebody who's able to do it for them and can do it loyally and that often involves paying legions extra bonuses here and there and making sure the praetorian guard don't murder you in your sleep so ultimately, I think we've got a nice wrap up there just to finish up this total episode looking at the House of Caesar, Augustus as a whole, what's involved, how this is more of an interesting episode in the sense of the military figure isn't as important when you see that the the political activity and actions of him and then his extended family result in them being in control without having to be actually good military commanders to back up that. And it makes it for a very, it makes it for a very interesting uh, deeper reading you can find out a hell of a lot more about the imperial family as a whole we give a very 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 rough um, introduction of what they were about and um, there's so many more anecdotes and stories and information but we wanted to focus a little bit on the well the Pax it's funny we're focusing on the Pax Romana and the battles that kind of happened in it so it's the battles that happened in the era of peace <laughs> so so um, but it's fun it's fun to pull them up it's fun to see that the a dynasty can fall apart so so flimsily as well and that it started with such great prominence and even it has that inertia that the titles, the ranks, the information, the name Augustus and the title Caesar will live on. Charlemagne, for example, will be crowned an Augustus. You know, he's, it's, he has no connection at all to that imperial family and no connection at all to Rome. In fact, he'd have more of a connection to the Germanic people that would have caused Augustus problems. So, with all that in mind, I think we're going to wrap up for the episode and just as a heads up, the next episode we're going to head much further east and just have a focus and a look at some other cultures and other civilizations because we're very conscious we focus very heavily, now it's because the data's there, but very heavily on uh, Greco-Roman societies, be it the successor kingdoms or be it the Romans or anyone around them or the early Greeks or even some of the Egyptians, but it's, it's a very, very lo- localised area of the world. But for the next episode, we're going to focus on the first emperor of China and some of the other Chinese rulers. So hopefully that'll be an interesting episode. We'll talk a little bit about some of the anecdotes as well. We're we're simultaneously getting out of our comfort system and going to have to do a lot of reading on areas that we don't really know about going into it, but also getting into our comfort zone in that there are going to be a lot of big, probably exaggerated battles happening. Yes. But thankfully, because we're training a history machine in that sense, they're big, they're exaggerated, they're over the top. But if everything is big, exaggerated, over the top, it's still provides like reasonable figures as an output so it's it's good it's it's funny that uh, it's not that bias is filtered out but it's filtered in and still calculated yeah. so <laughs> it kind of it see it, it kind of calls the <laughs> calls your bluff on it and says like okay i kind of get what really happened if this is what you're telling me this is probably, probably what, what actually really happened like. yeah so <laughs> so yeah so thanks very very much for listening we hope you enjoyed this episode you can reach us by email on history machine podcast at gmail.com we are on twitter and um you can also uh, check out our website, historymachinepodcast.com. So I've been Niall. And I've been Cahill. And thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.